The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. So there's this myth in the world of business that if you're tough enough, practiced enough, motivated enough, you can push hard 24-7 for months, quarters, years even, and endure all manner of obstacles and stressors and adversity, circumstances and cycles without the need to step off, step back, recover and refuel along the way. That capacity, that relentlessness, we're told, is somewhere between the expectation and the aspiration. It's where the magic happens, the big triumphs, the legendary careers. Except it's not. It is, in fact, a total fantasy. We as humans, we don't work like that. There's literally no domain in work and life that requires high-level performance that works like that either. And when we hold ourselves to the impossible standard of constant elite-level performance, especially on the back of three years of brutalizing upheaval, isolation, overwork, overwhelm, and burnout, it is a recipe for personal and professional disaster. And as leaders during this time, it's also a recipe for wildly dysfunctional workplace culture, team dynamics, unrealistic expectations, exploitation, and eventually disintegration. So as we emerge from the three years of turmoil, and head straight into yet another season of uncertainty. How do we acknowledge the human experience in the middle of it? How we lead during these times will be mission critical in not just meeting our goals, but also preserving our humanity. That is where we're headed in today's Spark Hot Take with Brain Trust member, strategic advisor, executive coach, founder of the Productive Flourishing Consultancy, and the author of the multi-award-winning book, Start Finishing, Charlie Gilkey. So Charlie and I, we examine the reality that we're now in, where we're being tasked to show up, often in extreme circumstances, with great limitation of resources, and perform as if, well, everything is just fabulous, where like we're all well-rested, chilled out, mentally and physically on point, and ready to roll persistently at the highest level. And Charlie draws upon some powerful parallels between his experience as a leader in the military building his own organizations, coaching senior leaders in companies of all sizes, and other domains where elite, high-stakes performance is demanded in environments defined by relentless high stress and endless uncertainty. And we explore a set of powerful insights and reframes to really help leaders and team members not just survive this moment, but thrive in it. So if you're ready to learn how to manage this moment in time, the levels of stress, lead with compassion and boost innovation and outcomes. Really excited to share this episode. And remember, it's time to prioritize recovery time for both individual well-being and overall societal health and elevate the needs of the human being to the same level as the needs of the organization. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Charlie Gilkey, it is always fantastic to be hanging out with you, going deep into conversations. Today is one of our hot take episodes where we pick a topic that is relevant on people's minds that is somehow involved in you showing up, feeling your best, doing your best work, feeling sparked in work and life. And But oftentimes it's a place that people are struggling or stumbling. And today's topic is one where I feel like the circumstances are different for different people, but the experience is increasingly universal. You want to take us into the topic? Yeah. Well, you know, how we got into this is we were just talking about what's in the air, what's in the air, and then we're seeing in the field. And that's what I love about these hot takes is that we have to say, like, here's what we're seeing in the field. Um, Jonathan, you know, I love how sharing, I love sharing field notes. Um, what's been a common theme amongst a lot of the leaders, executives, managers, um, and a lot of the small business owners that I've been working with is this soul deep tire that it's surprising people. It's not surprising to me, but it's surprising to them, right? And so the the specific instance that I was thinking of in this conversation was a client of mine who was the CEO of a clinic. And, you know, at the start of COVID, all of that extreme effort that it took for our frontline workers to do what they did at the time and the healthcare professionals, and then had some other pretty devastating life stuff that happened right after the first two years of COVID. And she is just worn out. But she's also high energy, really a go-getter, driven, has been just that her whole life. That's how you become a CEO, it turns out. Um, And I was talking to her and I just had to remind her, I was like, look, you have been between those two years of being at the helm during the start and rise of COVID times and the transitions. And then with what was going on in her personal life, it's like, you've been deployed for four years. And by deployed, you know, my background is as an army veteran. And and the thing about it is, is when we deploy troops, no matter the service, like you go and you do your thing and it's hard and life changes and you come back a different person and all those things happen. And I'm trying to downplay people's veteran service. Everybody who's done it knows what I'm talking about. But we also bring those troops home and you go on rotation. So you don't stay for most people, four years deployed. You stay six months and then you'll come back for a little bit, right? Um, get some rest, recharge, recuperate, and go back, right? Um, every branch is different. Every sub-branch is different. But the basic point is you can't be deployed that long without it taking a toll on your life, on those around you, and at a macro level on society. Yeah. And I mean, when you think about it, you know, you use the military analogy, um, but you can actually use a lot of other different analogies. You could use a sports analogy, mm-hmm. you know, or an athlete training for peak performance. You know, like there's, there's no such thing who, as an athlete who is prepared to perform at their highest levels all year, every year. It just doesn't work that way. The human body is not designed to function that way. The human mind 
is not designed with that capacity. So there's a there's a cycling that tends to happen where you cycle down, you have seasons of recovery, seasons of rebuilding, then you have seasons where you ramp back up, and then you have seasons where you're really preparing for peak performance. And that might be the quote competitive season. You know, so it seems like People in all these different domains, um, the military especially, who's invested you know, like a huge amount of resources in studying these things and understanding how do people actually need to function and to cycle in order to both like, be human and and be like able to actually sustain themselves and also perform at very high levels for sustained amounts of time under high amounts of stress where the stakes are sometimes life and death. And people in elite performance fields very often have invested heavily in understanding about themselves on an individual level. But we're now in this window where we have got an entire society who has been tasked with showing up and often in extreme circumstances with with great limitation of resources, great limit, and that's both financial and in terms of people available, yet the expectations that you'll show up and perform the way you used to, but and not not just the way you used to, but even at a higher level with less available to you to do it, those expectations haven't gone away. They've only piled on and there's no cycling down. It's been three, four years for a lot of people where there's been no cycling down from that. And it's interesting that you had that conversation. I've had conversations as well and people are like, I just don't get it. And I'm like, none of us were built to function this way. Fundamentally, we were not, well, we were, but our average lifespan was 35 years old, right? Um, and so we come from a very resilient species of being able to go through duress. But in our modern society, um, especially in some of the privileged West, right? We, we haven't done this. There are communities, and I want to call this out, there are communities across the United States that actually are in this global distress constantly, because of resources, because of, you know, macroeconomic things, because of gang turf warfare, because of abuse, because of a lot of different things in those communities. And so a lot of communities of color are like, yeah, this is what it's been, right? Welcome to the party, everybody, right? But so I want to acknowledge that without dwelling too much upon that, because that's a real thing. But for, you know, a lot of folks listening to a lot of the podcast and reading some of the stuff that we're in, like, that's not financial instability, it's not something they've had to really deal with in the sense where like, you don't know not only if you're going to have a job, but if there are going to be jobs, <laughs> right? Not really wired for that. And I think so many people, my, my observation is people think like, well, I took that one sort of week long vacation, so I should be good, right? Nah, that's not the way this works, <laughs> right? You do not heal. I want to be careful about using the word trauma because I know that has a, a very like pres- a very specific meaning within the medical industry. So what I'm saying here is when you look at the massive emotional disruption and pain and uncertainty and things like that, just for a shorthand, I'm going to call that trauma. At a cultural level, we don't heal from that quickly, right? At a family level, like Jonathan, I know some of the stuff you had to deal with with your with your kid as she was going through school and some of this and how massively disruptive. Like, I want to, if I may, I know we don't want to dwell on all the things, but let's just talk about some of these elements that were unprecedented. Like we have, we're going to have a generation of kids that didn't go to preschool. That's going to fundamentally affect how they socialize. And, you know, 15 years from now, we're going to see a blip between those who had preschool, that weird two years, 
And then as we got back, we're going to see that. So you have to sort of think about it. The way I've been thinking about this, Jonathan, is like, think about like the geologic record. And if you if you cut through the earth, you can see different epochs of, of things, like whether there's a volcano thing or like just what happened. If you were to look at the human sort of strata, we're going to see this line in the, in the strata of when, clo- when COVID happened, because it's the first time we've had a truly, truly global epidemic. So I'd speak about preschools. We, I, what got me on that was, you know, your kid and her going to college, people's first two, three years of college for that period of time, dramatically different. If you entered the job market at that time, dramatically different. If you had your first leadership rotation, dramatically different, right? And so I want us to make space and not just try to whitewash over that like, ah, it happened and it's in the past. Like, no, we are going to be feeling ripples. And one of the ripples that we're feeling is this like, deep fatigue. Um, we've seen it play out through the great resignation, quiet quitting, all those sort of things. Those are ripples of COVID. But now we're just at that point, three, you know, three years into the cycle, three, four, depending upon how you count, where leaders are going to have to address their own burnout, fatigue, wear down, whatever word you want to use. So that start there, that their team probably hasn't had a true recovery. Like if I were a military commander and I knew that I was receiving a unit that had been on tour well past their redeployment date, like they hadn't had R&R, I would know their morale is going to be a certain way. Their readiness is going to be a certain way. Their endurance is going to be there and they're more prone to make mistakes. I would know that and plan for that. I don't think we're doing that for our teams and understanding that that's in the air. And as an individual, understanding that your team and your your peers, like we're, we're starting to see a lot of some of the team tension and pokiness, like after after the great crisis and people to do and they just, like people bumping into each other. Look, you're tired. And I know that's obvious, but tired people do stuff that tired people do, right? They say the wrong thing. They forget to send the damn file, right? That email they thought was coherent is not, right? Um, They forget to say something. So we can just catalog the types of mistakes we would predict and types of work that we predict if we were in this level of fatigue. And yet, I don't know that we're giving ourselves, our teams, and our coworkers the grace of that on the day-to-day. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting the way you describe it, and I'm nodding along um, based on conversations that I've had. And I think a lot of times we look at, you describe different levels. You know, there's there's members of a team who've been through a certain thing, and then there's the leader. And then very often the level of, the level of that sort of like leadership within an organization has different tensions both up and down. And I think sometimes we get to a moment like this and we, there's a tendency to point a finger at leaders and managers, you know, like you've got to figure out, like, you've got to listen to your team more. You've got to actually like dial into them. You've got to understand all these things that you just described a leader in a military context would understand that if a group of people were coming in after like having quote served that they would assume these things are happening. Um, They've also been trained for that particular thing. Leaders, especially mid-management, even upper-level leaders, have not been trained for this. They've been trained for a lot of other things, and they may have fantastic experience 
in the bunker of business and deal closing and groundlessness and having to respond really quickly to uncertainty, they have not been trained for this moment because this moment has not existed in our lifetimes. So when you we look at and have a tendency to say, well, leaders need to pick up the slack or you know, they've got to do this or that, which was I'm seeing some of that happening. I think it's a, a time for compassion and understanding and education and training and saying they're doing the best that they can with what they have and what they know. And they are suffering just like every other person who has been through this last season. And they have the added burden of having their own metrics to hit. And very often, especially as we move out of the last three years into now, what is becoming this season of profound economic instability. Mm -hmm. So if the goal beforehand was do two times as much with half as much resources, that goal hasn't gone away. It's only gotten worse in a lot of ways right now, because now you're saying we've got even less resources because we need to, quote, make it through the next three quarters. So how can we expect somebody who's in a leadership position, let alone the people on the teams that they manage, to actually be able to function intelligently and effectively, do the things that they need to do to make really good, intelligent decisions, and take care of themselves so they don't, as human beings who are moving through the same season, not just entirely just fall apart, decompensate in every part of their life, And I think it's a time for a certain amount of both compassion and education and zooming the lens out and taking a meta lens and saying, can we acknowledge what's really happening here? Because this hasn't happened before and none of us were ready for it. So let's figure out what we do need to get ourselves ready for where we are in, in this particular moment. Yeah, I love that. And it goes to why, you know, as I, as I do the work I do with leaders and with, you know, team habits and things like that, we, we shifted from just thinking about the people and their individual behavior and think about the context in which you're working. Because if you don't change that context, if you don't change your work ways, you don't change your team habits, you don't have that acknowledgement, then you're doing exactly what you're talking about is like you're telling someone to put 14 units of stuff in a 10 unit bag. That never worked. <laughs> It will never work, right? And now these humans are tired. And now these humans are- Not just tired, like bone tired. (laughs) Bone deep tired. And so I think for all people who work in teams, which is so many of us, right? If we're talking about the organizational context, if you really have the emotional imagination to realize that everybody is in a bind, everybody is in a middle position, like middle managers are stuck between executives and their teams and trying to meet the demands of both of them. And then, you know, frontline workers or, you know, individual contributors are stuck between middle managers and customers or people receiving that. So there's, they're binded and like, and you're like, oh, the executives have it easy. No, not so much, actually, <laughs> right? They're stuck between the middle managers and what the team needs and what the board and all those different things. Everybody is in that bind. I think when we, when we address that, it gives us the emotional imagination to really have that compassion. We're like, oh, it's not that Richard is a butthole. Like Richard is, he's got his own bind like I've got. How do we come together and say, you know what? We're both in a bind, but we can still align and figure out how we can do this together. Maybe, you know, it's subtracting or changing expectations. 
And then, you know, that always leads to who gets to set these expectations and who gets to make the decisions and who gets to do that. But I think from a, again, if we walk down some of those levels, but I start up at this sort of executive level, like your job right now is to really champion realism in the face of what we're dealing with. If you like the old way of having wildly ambitious goals that there's, you know, 2% chance that the team is going to be able to hit. That was dubious to start with, but right now, it's really not the time, right? Um, you, I'm not saying you can't have stretch goals, but maybe your moonshot should be getting your teens recovered and learning how to address this new world of reality, this new world of work. Otherwise, you're just going to have the re- revolving door that you probably have, right? Um, indefinitely. And you know how expensive that is. Middle managers, it's really one of those things of learning, again, advocating for yourself and your team. Because if you advocate for the sense of grounded realism and understanding that your team is going to need to be, look, I wish we can all go offline for six months or a year, right? And just recover and do what we need to do. But that's not the world we live in, right? But what we can do is have team slobaticals. What we can do is look at the pace of our work and see if we can change some of the intensity to meet the same goals. What we can do as a team is get better and much more realistic about what we're saying yes to and understanding that like, yeah, I'm going to get canceled by so many people on this one, but I'm going to say it, right? Teams can often be the thing that create their own bright, shiny objects that then they commit to that then end up creating excess work and you know, middle management or executive didn't say to do a thing. It's just the bright, shiny objects or the unnecessary addition that happens in work. Teams can create that on themselves. And so looking and saying like, no, we're for this period of time, we are all taking care of each other at work in the way we do work. And we all have a part to play in this. And the options are to play that part or to be on the receiving end of that work, that part not being played. We all participate. Right. Okay. So you offer that up. Let's say I'm, I am in uh, executive management and I've retained you and because I'm, this is going on across my organization and you just tell that to me. And I look at you and I say, well, how am I supposed to actually do that when our organization is in a state of existential crisis? So every organization is going to be have a different answer to why they're in existential crisis. So many of the existential crises, like unless it's a major supply chain issue and there's just not enough sheep or chicken or whatever it is being made. So much of the existential crisis is actually tied to personnel right now, right? And when you really, like when you click three layers deep, it's retention, it's engagement, it's productivity, it's efficiency, it's all those things when you deliver on the patina. So I almost always push back against we're in an existential crisis. What I hear is there are some fundamental decisions that you need to make and do differently. Let's get real about what those are, right? Is it that for whatever reason, your business grew during the good days and it was unsustainable to start with. But then once money fled, you ended up with a headcount that's way too big. Well, that was because of certain fundamentals and you have to make a choice, right? I mean, it might be a hard choice. I get that as someone who's had to make some hard choices recently, but I would push back against the existential, like the, 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 the patina of the existential crisis and be like, okay, let's dig deeper. Because we have to make a choice, right? Not making a choice on this is only furthering whatever existential crisis that you have, right? Is the existential crisis 
that you're under, you chronically underpaying your people for the amount of work that you're putting on them and you can't get the talent to do it because of your, like, that's not an existential crisis. That's a choice about how you're hiring and who you're hiring and how you're setting priorities is the existential crisis that you, you know, bought too many businesses and you acquired too many businesses and some of them are failing and you don't have to like, that's not an existential <laughs> crisis. That was something that happened in there. So I think that's, I don't know. I've been doing this long enough that when I hear things like it's an existential crisis, I was like, mm, it's probably decisions that you made in a time that were questionable in the first place that COVID has put additional lens on because people are tired, right? Because operation. Now, again, if it's a real supply chain issue, if it's like you you can't do that, like that's something you have to solve, right? In a different way. But I think I just would push back a lot and I learned to push back as a coach. So I either get hired or fired pretty quickly, right? But I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not going to accept the existential crisis thing. What is creating that? Let's solve that. And you probably will find when you dig deep enough, it always comes back to people and how your people yeah. are performing. And if you're just telling them to squeeze and push and fat and fight harder at a certain point, especially if your past organizational behavior has been to tell people push harder, work more, like we got to get through this. And then they do that and get laid off anyways. What incentive do they actually have this time around? Unless, unless there is some real promise and commitment that either, you know, paying compensation changes or their work life will get better at some point because of X, Y, and Z. If it's just, let's just get it through this next existential crisis from an employee, from a manager's, from an independent, from an individual contributor's perspective, honestly, it sounds like more of the same, just more of the same. So sorry, leaders on this one. I know you're tired too. We started there, but I think you got some homework to do about what's creating that existential crisis and how you're, how you're fundamentally going to solve that. Um, and not just hand wave that you've got an existential crisis. So you need to keep doing the same thing that you're doing that's creating the existential crisis. Sorry. Yeah. So agree. And, and I acknowledging like what you described, there are significant cars out for legitimate logistical things, which are completely out of your control, which, which happened over the last three years. But what I'm seeing so much more now is sort of like in the ecosystem is self-inflicted existential crises. And you know, like fundament, I remember you know, like over a decade ago researching when I was researching a book called Uncertainty, which was all about how people move through moments of high stakes uncertainty and studying the research and seeing that research actually demonstrates clear as day that there's an inverse relationship between stress and anxiety on one side and innovation, creativity, and problem solving on the other side. So when we, like when we as a leader go to our teams or to our, like the leaders who are under us leading their teams and say like existential crisis mode, we like blah, blah, blah. We have to move faster. We need better solutions, better ideas. I need it on my desk tomorrow. People need to work harder. What we don't realize we're doing is we're ratcheting up dramatically the level of stress and anxiety. And we are functionally temporarily limiting the cognitive and creative and innovation based and problem solving abilities of all of the people that we're going to saying we need better innovation, better creativity, better problem solving, better solutions without realizing that we're doing it. And it creates this death spiral of humanity and productivity. And and we, we don't realize that this is what, and, and again, this is not ill-intentioned. Like I, I truly do believe we're all doing the best that we can and leaders for the most part are doing the best they can. But there's a depth of understanding of human nature, psychology, the way 
that we need to structure things the way that we need to move through seasons of exertion and recovery that I think needs to be focused back on in this moment in time. And I think what we're both arguing for is a, a rally cry to say, can we actually zoom the lens out here, acknowledge the difficulty of the, this moment that we're all in, and at the same time, acknowledge the fact that pushing ourselves harder, pushing others harder, demanding more with less, may actually be doing the exact opposite of what we're trying to accomplish, both for our individuals and for the organization. And if we feel like we're in the middle of an existential crisis, as senior leadership or as middle management or on teams, it may be time to hit pause and say, like, how much of this is actually uh, self-induced originally and perpetually being self-inflicted and deepened without us even realizing what we're doing? And can we reimagine uh, the way that we step into relationship and organize and manage and lead within the company? And I think if not now, then when? Precisely. Well, and, and to your point, I love that you added that point about creativity and innovation. Another way to sort of think about that is, is when we're stressed, we optimize for merely tactical solutions. Like we just want to solve the next little problem ahead of us. We just want to solve the next little problem ahead of us. And that's a coping mechanism. And it's how we get through those periods. But that sort of pressure cooker creativity only solves small problems, right? Um, and only it's, it's always stopgap. It's always slapshot. Um, and this is how you end up with management debt. This is how you end up with technical debt. This is how you end up with all the debt that organizations have. It's just people crammed and making the next limited decision that they can make to get to the next little check. And at the same time, they're hit over the head with like, we need you to be innovators and strategic thinkings and solving root problems. That fundamentally takes a different orientation to time and attention and, and energy. Like, it just does. It's going to take longer and you can't keep people in pressure cooker mode and expect crockpot sort of results. Those are fundamental different ways of cooking solutions. So if your organization is really needing some of those root calls, strategic, you know, innovative solutions, you got to switch out a pressure cooker and into crockpot. And if not, you're just going to keep getting what you're getting and like it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I think that we have um, probably done this topic justice today. <laughs> As always, I think we're both, um, we see what's going on and we're both like so focused on not just the, uh, the outcomes and performances within an organization, but the humanity of the people who make them possible. And I think it's time to really revisit both. Um, so glad to be able to dive into this topic with you. I think it's important and I hope that folks will really do some re-examination um, as we move forward, because we are in now a new season that is emerging out of the former new season, and it's going to need some different different takes and different tools stepping into it. I so appreciate that. Thanks for having me. For li for everyone listening, please give yourself the grace of just understanding this recovery period may take longer than you think, and that's okay. Yeah, because if you try to rush it, you only stay in it. Mm, great final words. Thanks, Charlie. And for everybody listening, we will see you here next week. Take care. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. 
just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.